Um, we're going to have three Bible readings this morning. The first one being in 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, we're reading different parts of this chapter, and we're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 8. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, and listen in your heart, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now down to verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. And down to verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them, to an, give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land, in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies, who carry them captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer, and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all the transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace." Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servants and to the plea of your people Israel. Give ear to them whenever they call to you, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Our second reading is in Jeremiah chapter 25, starting at verse 3. For twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the, world, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. 
although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from the old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grindings of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. And our last reading is Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Thank you, Rex. Well, a question I want to ask you this morning to begin. How do we deal with our sin? I suppose the question depends on how you define we, doesn't it? If referring to uh, we as Australians, then the answer most of the time is probably going to be, well, you just learn to live with it. 
I read this week that the, the self-help industry is worth something like $10 billion globally. And seeing as I read that in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, uh, then I think it's safe to assume that Australians have a slice of that pie. And the message of self-help, more often than not, is that we need to find peace with our faults. Our imperfections, our mistakes, our rebellion. We need to live with ourselves and just to simply accept ourselves, warts and all. But how should we deal with our sin as Christians? And not just as individual Christians, but as a local church. Well, Daniel 9 this morning gives us some guidance. And there are two main sections to this chapter. The first is Daniel's prayer, and the second is Gabriel visiting him and telling him a vision of what is to come. And so we're going to explore both of those sections through four points. One, a covenant repentance. Two, a covenant plea. Three, a God's covenant response. And four, a better covenant. So with Bibles and minds and hearts open, let's begin. And how about I pray for us as we do that? Heavenly Father, we come here before you acknowledging and recognizing that we are sinners, that we are imperfect, that we have faults, and that we desperately need you. Father, we pray that as we explore this chapter in your word, may you speak to us Through it, may your spirit be at work in our minds and in our hearts so that we might respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the opening verses of Daniel chapter 9, sorry, you you may not be there. You can turn to that in your Bibles if you haven't done that yet. I'm sorry, I don't know what page it is on the blue ones. 435, there you go. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one home as our gift to you. So the opening verses of Daniel chapter 9, they not only orient us to the timeline of what we're about to read, but they also give us the the theological setting. So let's read the first couple of verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. You might remember the last couple of weeks, the visions have come during the reign of King Belshazzar, whom we met in Daniel chapter 5. And this time, our chapter is set at the same time as the end of Daniel chapter 5, where Belshazzar is killed and Darius the Mede becomes the king. You might remember we talked about who Darius is in some of these uh, previous weeks. And if you have more questions about that, you're welcome to come and ask me later. But of great significance to the whole chapter of chapter 9 is what Daniel has to say in verse 2. This is an important verse. You see, Daniel mentions uh, Jeremiah because he's very likely been meditating on Jeremiah's prophecy, the very book that we have. 
and realizing that the 70 years that he refers to is probably about now, probably about this time when this is happening. Think about it like this. Uh, Imagine that you received a letter in the mail tomorrow that had the date stamped as being sent on January the 1st, 2000. Sounds a little bit like a movie, perhaps, that came out a long time ago called Back to the Future. And it had specific instructions to be sent to your address on the 30th of May, 2022. And inside was a letter which said simply, I'll see you tomorrow, Jesus. Well, at first, probably for most of us, we would just think that it was a joke that somebody had, you know, practical joke that they played on us. But I reckon you'd be just a little bit curious to know if it was for real or not. Now, imagine reading something that you know for sure were the words of a bona fide prophet of God that you knew 100% spoke on behalf of the Lord. Well, that's what Daniel had. Jeremiah had prophesied in two places in the book about the 70 years that Israel would be in exile in chapters 25 and 29, as we read earlier. And we saw in both of those chapters how God pronounced his judgment on Israel for their disobedience. It was because they did not listen. It was because they did not turn away from their idols and from their evil deeds because they did not obey God's words that God brought his judgment on them through Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they conquered the people of Israel and brought them into exile. And that's how Daniel ended up in Babylon along with so many other people. But as God promised, after 70 years, he would bring, and as we read earlier, judgment on Babylon for their destruction of the Jews. Go figure, right? God brings judgment to Israel for walking away from him through Babylon. And then he judges Babylon for destroying Israel. This is yet another paradox of Scripture that is difficult to reconcile if you don't believe that the sovereignty of God and the accountability for our actions can coexist. And this is one of the many examples of both of those truths coexisting in the Bible. Well, perhaps the passage that Daniel meditated on the most is here in chapter 29. Let me read that section to you again because uh, it is so good, it is so relevant to our passage, and it is so often taken out of context and put on mugs and Instagram posts and things that people hang up in their toilets. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
Jeremiah is detailing here what is to happen at the end of those 70 years of exile. And here God says that he will respond to his people when they call upon his name. Earlier, we also read sections of 1 Kings chapter 8, which clearly seems to have inspired Daniel's prayer. And so with all of that context and all of that background ringing in our ears, let's now read Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, beginning at verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs... I'm oh, sorry, I've already read that bit. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Our God, by walking by his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled by us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For upon the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel draws upon the language and the heart of repentance, of Solomon's prayer and of Jeremiah's prophecy. And he recognized that at the end of the 70 years, his people needed to cry out to God in repentance. 
And from the time when the first exiles came to Babylon, right at the beginning of the book of, of Daniel, which was around 605 BC, to this time, at the end of the Babylonian kingdom, and the return of the exiles to Jerusalem at around 538 BC, that's almost bang on 70 years. Daniel recognized this, and so he prays on behalf of his people. He knows that that is what God is calling them to do, to recognize the reason why they are in exile. Did you notice Daniel's basis for his prayer, though? Right at the beginning of it. He says, the Lord is the great and the awesome God who does what? He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and who keep his commandments. Solomon and Jeremiah, they also both recognize this. Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, they clearly show that the covenant included blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. This was the covenant that the Israelites entered into with God. And given that the temple was destroyed and that they ended up in exile, it's not hard to see whether they had obeyed or disobeyed. Whether they'd received blessings or curses. But as Daniel meditates on Jeremiah's words, he recognizes the need for his people to turn back to God. Have a, have a listen to how he just piles on the description of their sin. We have, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly and rebelled, we have turned aside from commandments and rules, we have not listened to the prophets. Each of these descriptions, they, they tell us in different ways how serious and how severe Israel's disobedience, its rebellion and turning away from God was. If somebody describes to you a person as a mean, nasty, no good, low life who doesn't deserve a lick of your time, then you know that it's pretty serious. And Daniel is making it crystal clear how serious Israel's sin is. And you notice Daniel includes himself in that prayer. Now, as you think about, back to what we know of Daniel from this book, ask yourself the question, is Daniel a good example of somebody who follows God, or is he a bad example? Well, given his record, which includes not giving up prayer, even though it meant you know, being thrown to the lions, I would suggest to you that actually his record is pretty squeaky clean. We look at this list and we think, surely none of these confessions, they apply to Daniel, of anybody. And yet he identifies with his people. He takes on their sin and he seeks God's mercy and forgiveness for it. He intercedes on behalf of his people. And notice how some of the sin that Daniel confesses, it's not even sin that would have been committed in his lifetime. The sins of the people that brought about God's wrath were the reason they ended up in exile. And some of those were things before Daniel was even born. Yet here he is, owning it, confessing it, 
and seeking God's forgiveness for it. Is this not the natural disposition of the Christian? Shouldn't it be? We are people who follow Christ, who himself was completely and perfectly blameless, without sin, with a record that was even squeakier clean than Daniel's. Yet he took on our sin on our behalf. This leads to some complex and sometimes uncomfortable implications for us. I remember when I was in college, uh, our principal, Peter Adam, gave a talk uh, at a public event about the need for Australians to say sorry to the Indigenous Australians of Australia for taking the land from them. At the time, the Prime Minister, John Howard, he made headlines in the news for not being willing to do it. His rationale was, I wasn't there. It's not my sin. I didn't make that mistake. Now, this is a complex issue and one that I'm sure we'll be talking about and working on for the next several decades as a nation. Uh, Interestingly, National Sorry Day was only a couple of days ago. And given our current political divides and uh, views on race and some Christians' concern about critical theory and all of that swirling around in the water, there is a, a spider web of interlocking ideas and issues that is just ready to trap and suck the blood out of anybody who dares to try and navigate this web. Now, I don't plan to try and navigate all the threads of that web this morning. But I do want to take what seems to me the right first step as it arises from Daniel chapter 9. And that is that Christians confess not just their individual sins, but the corporate sins of the people that they are part of. Now, immediately, it's complex. Right? Which groups? Which people? How broad? How serious a sin? From how far back? Can someone even be forgiven based on another person's confession? What would be the point of that? For me personally, the issue of European settlement in Australia, it has extra layers of complexity. Not only was I not around when our ancestors took this land... They're not even my ancestors. Mine, mine, uh, most of mine are from an archipelago made up of 7,000 plus islands about 3,000 kilometers from here called the Philippines. Yet I'm a citizen of this nation and not of that one. I've been raised in this nation. I grew up and spent most of my life here. Should I confess the sins of both those nations, those peoples? How far do I zoom out? Do I confess the sins of the entire human race of which I am also a part? I don't actually have neat answers to all of those questions. And as I said, I'm aware that it's not straightforward. But I'm confident in the basic biblical point. And at the very least for us, 
I'm confident that we can confess our sins as God's church. And even more specifically, as his local church. If there is a group, if there is a people with which we share the deepest and the most common identity, then surely it is this one. Brothers and sisters, do you see yourself as so united to your local church that the sins of the body are your own? Listen to the very corporate we nature of John's letter in 1 John 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we think that it is only our personal sins that we need to worry about and that everything else is not our problem because we didn't do it, then that is not in step with our own Lord and Savior. This is one of the reasons why we pray corporate prayers of confession when we gather on the Lord's day. Perhaps some of the items in those prayers don't apply to you specifically. But by doing so together, we recognize that we walk in step with brothers and sisters who need God's forgiveness and mercy as much as we do even if our own struggles may differ. And in so doing, we recognize that perhaps there is something in us that God is shining a light on through the sins of those that he has united us to. How might we grow together in corporate confession of our sin? And what do we do after we confess. Well, that brings us to point two, a covenant plea. You could confess your sin to someone and it could achieve absolutely nothing. Perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you've confessed your sin to somebody expecting that that confession would change the situation, would would somehow improve your relationship, and it hasn't. One of the reasons we as Christians so confidently confess our sin to God is because we know his character and we know how he will respond, as does Daniel. Did you notice the contrast between what Daniel says about himself and his people and what he says about God? In verses 5 and 6, he makes very clear that Israel's wickedness and lack of faithfulness is what landed them where they were. But in verse 7, he contrasts Israel's wickedness with God's righteousness. To the Lord belongs righteousness. And then he goes on again to describe Israel's shame and their consequences of their sin. But then he comes back to describing the character of the Lord, our God. 
to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. God displayed his righteousness and his mercy over and over again with the people of Israel in their history. This is not something that he just says. It is something that he has proven. When they rebelled in the wilderness, God brought about judgment. He did the same in the time of the judges and in the time of the kings. Yet when his people truly turned from their idols and their sin and returned to him, he showed them mercy. That's what we're about to see in the rest of this chapter. Daniel is calling upon that attribute of God that he knows is true. And I call this point a covenant plea because Daniel not only prays with God's character in mind, he makes a plea knowing God's covenant. Now, it's fitting that in this chapter we see God's name, Yahweh, seven times. And in the book of Daniel, it is only here in chapter 9. You'll notice if you look through the, have a quick look through the, the passage in your Bibles that sometimes Lord is actually spelt with capital letters and other times it is spelt just normally. This is the English Bible's way of indicating the word, the name Yahweh. When it's in capitals, Yahweh is what is being said. When it's not, Adonai, the general word for Lord, is being said. And this is fitting because it's on this basis that Daniel is calling upon Yahweh to fulfill his unique covenant promise to forgive his people and bring them back to Jerusalem. And once again, we see how, how so well-versed Daniel is in the Scriptures. Let's read from verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your ears, open your eyes, and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called. By your name. Notice the orientation of Daniel's prayer. It is Jerusalem-centric, his holy hill. Here is a clear echo of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, where multiple times he asks God to hear the pleas of his people when they turn towards the temple in prayer. And you may recognize the language of, of making the Lord's face to shine from the well-known benediction in Numbers chapter 6. What that means is, is God showing his favor and his face to shine upon you. 
You know, if someone greets you with a, with a happy, shining face, you know that you have good favor with them. And perhaps most importantly, Daniel recalls how God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt to bring them to the promised land. And what was the purpose of God doing that? Well, Exodus 14, 18 tells us, so that the Egyptians shall know that he is the Lord, so that he would be glorified. Daniel's heart in his prayer is the same. His plea with God, it's not just about his people receiving mercy and restoring Israel and rebuilding the temple. Daniel knows that God didn't just bring them out of slavery in Egypt so that they could be kept alive and no longer be slaves. No, he wants the Lord's name to be known and to be honored in the world. He wants the same reason that God brought them out of Egypt to be the same reason that he returns them to Jerusalem. His plea for the Lord to to hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, pay attention and act. It's not just motivated by seeing a new temple. He says, delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel is concerned about God's name. He's concerned about the honor of the Lord's name. He's concerned about him being glorified in all that he does. Is that how you pray? Church, is it how we pray? Are the things that motivate us, the things that animate and energize our prayers, are they the things that result in His name being known? Is our heart's desire that He would be glorified in the world? The opposite of this, of course, are prayers that are only ever concerned about our own glory and our own name. Prayers that place our priorities at the top of the list. That only praise God when he gives us what we want. It looks like an absence of prayers for God to do his work in our lives for his sake. For him to do what he desires so that his name may be honored. And not just seeking our own desires. As the 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, said, Tell me what a man's prayers are. Tell me what a person's prayers are. And I will soon tell you the state of his soul. And I think you can apply that corporately. Tell me what a church's prayers are. And I will soon tell you the state of its soul. Again, we hope to model this in our prayers together as a church. Please tell us if you notice that we're straying away from seeking the honor of God's name or if there are ways that we can increase that. 
This is why doing separate prayers of adoration and thanksgiving, they can be helpful in orienting us Godward. And in so doing, we hope that the church's prayer also becomes our own prayer. Daniel makes his plea as one who knows that the God who he is praying to has made a covenant with his people. And he trusts that God will make good on that covenant. He knows the plans that he has for them. Plans to prosper them and not to harm them. Plans to hear them when they call upon him. And he does. Which brings us to our third point. God's covenant promise. Notice the timing of this next section. Daniel takes pains to point out to us when Gabriel actually arrives. He comes before Daniel even finishes his prayer. That's how immediate God's response is. Let's read from verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. You notice that the word went out at the beginning of his pleas for mercy, and Gabriel is only arriving now to tell him about it. You see, God is only too ready to answer the pleas of his people in accord with his covenant. He hears and he answers immediately. Now, let me clarify something here. I know what it's like to lose faith in God answering prayer. I doubt there is scarcely a Christian in history who has not struggled with unanswered prayer. To think that I've asked for so many things, even things that, that I know God would want. And God has apparently not answered them. And my faith in the power of prayer wanes. But we only lose heart. We only find that we struggle with this because so often too easily we assume that the things we ask for are things that God has promised to us in the covenant that he has made with us. But they're not. The victory of a certain political leader, the physical healing of a loved one, the salvation of a friend, none of those things are covenant promises. Now, God absolutely does answer so many of our prayers that aren't directly related to His covenant. Many like these ones that I've just mentioned. But He does so out of His sovereign freedom and in accord with His divine will of decree. 
But you know the prayers that he will always give an immediate answer to? Do you know the prayers that he answers without delay? The prayers according to his covenant. When a person comes to Jesus and confesses his sin and seeks his, his forgiveness and his mercy, there is no delay from heaven in answering that prayer. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10 verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are no ifs or buts. There is no uh, maybe, maybe not. That is a prayer that you can guarantee will be answered. You see, all of us are born in Adam. And Adam's covenant with God meant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Adam disobeyed, bringing the curse of sin and death to every person after him, including us. But by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... A person is saved into a covenant where they are kept perfectly. Salvation means receiving Christ's righteousness today and being raised to life with him in death. Now, if you are here this morning and you have not yet called upon the Lord for salvation, let me urge you to do so today. You see, this is why faithful Christians throughout the ages have been able to endure life in Christ no matter what they've gone through, even when prayers have gone unanswered, even when the worst sufferings and persecutions have occurred, they have continued to trust in the Lord. Why? Because they have confidence in the fact that the Lord will not delay to answer the prayers of his people according to his covenant. And in that covenant, he has promised that he will hold them. He doesn't promise a comfortable life. But he does promise salvation now and in eternity. Is this how we pray? Do we pray in the confidence that God hears us and answers us and that he will keep his covenant promises? Do you pray when you are struggling in faith, when you are finding it difficult to, when it feels like your, your faith is hanging on by a thread, do you hold on to those covenant promises that God has given you? Brothers and sisters, Daniel knew. He knew as he prayed that God would keep his covenant. He will keep the covenant he has made with us in Christ. How much greater are those promises? And that brings us to our fourth and final point. A better covenant. Well, you need to save the best till last, right? These last four verses are the trickiest of the whole of, chapter, of Daniel chapter 9. But as with recent difficult chapters, I hope to make the big point clear. And you can continue on conversation about the details later on. 
But as we seek to understand this section, it's worth noting how Daniel came to understand the vision. In verse 22, Gabriel says that he made, well, Daniel says that Gabriel made him understand. You see, insight and understanding, they are given. And this is true of every person who comes to believe in the truth of the gospel. This is why we talk about being blind and then seeing. It is a miracle to believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens spiritual eyes. But also look at what Gabriel says to Daniel in verse 23. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Not only is understanding and wisdom given, we are also to engage our own minds in understanding. We are to consider. The Gospel writers echo this idea in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus uses the same language from Daniel to explain things that are to come. Have a listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. Believe me when I say that uh, it is often that I wish that I could just put my hands on a book, especially the Bible, and just absorb its contents. I mean, how, how many books could I read while I'm sleeping if that was the way to do it, right? Or that God would just you know, download to my brain the info that I need to live a good Christian life and so that I can just get on with living the Christian life and not have to bother thinking about it. But God desires for us to keep pressing into understanding because by it, he sanctifies and he shapes us. Let the reader understand. I know that some of you, like me, are not natural readers. But the Christian faith is one of continual consideration of the word of God. Continual thinking about it, continual meditation and reflection on it, continual prayerful response and shaping our hearts in light of it. That doesn't have to come exclusively from reading. This is the point of gathering as the local church, of singing biblically rich songs, of having sermons on the word, of discussions over lunch, of question time, of discipling one another individually or in groups together throughout the week. And, you, and I hope that you are actually encouraged, as I am, of the way that our church continues to grow in this. I love hearing about the conversations that are happening on Sundays and throughout the week. I love having those conversations myself. Keep going, church. Let the reader understand. I pray that we would be a church by the Spirit's illumination that would keep seeking to understand. Well, fortunately for us, we have an opportunity to do that right now with this passage. Let's read from verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. 
Know therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, the first thing to say is that this last section mirrors the beginning of the chapter where Daniel refers to 70 years. There are two 70s in Daniel chapter 9 at the beginning and the end. Now, 70 uh, weeks are the frame of this vision, and the word for weeks there in Hebrew is a term that literally just means a unit of seven. It was uh, commonly referred to uh, when it was used, being referred to weeks or a week, but that is not what it has to be translated as. Now, given the fact that this is a, a vision uh, and that the last two chapters have been apocalyptic visions, very fun ones about beasts and goats and rams, it makes sense that this could be taken as a 70 symbolic weeks. And so that's why the ESV has a text note that says that you could translate it as 70 sevens which is what the NIV does. And so right out of the bat, if you caught any of that, you've got a reason to have fights about what this passage means. And that has happened and continues to in our day. What are the 70 weeks? Are they literal weeks? If not, what's the time period that they refer to? Who are we talking about here? Now, there are several views, and as I said, I'm not going to walk you through all of them this morning. You're welcome to ask about them or discuss them later during lunch, if you like. As we finish, it's, uh, it's going to get a bit detailed, so please try and stay with me, and I will do my best to keep you with me. And the only reason I'm doing this is because I think it will help you to understand other parts of Scripture particularly other difficult parts of Scripture, like the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So the first thing to point out is that uh, I think the weeks are to be taken as symbolic. They don't need to be rigidly fixed to a time period. Again, this is because it's an apocalyptic vision. It's not a clear prophecy like Jeremiah's was. Hence, Jeremiah talking about 70 years, you can very clearly say, well, that refers to 70 literal years. In addition, seven also has a well-known background in the Old Testament to refer to fullness and completeness. But the key verse of this passage is verse 24. Look at what the decree is set to accomplish. There are six things there. Three of them which refer to dealing with sin, the first three. And then the second three, setting up something good that is to come. And so these things that are set up are what Gabriel is about to say about the 70 weeks that are coming and their purpose. 
One of the reasons I find this view convincing is because these six aims in verse 24 seem to be so clearly fulfilled in Jesus. Almost every other way of trying to make the 70 weeks kind of fit in history find it difficult to account for verse 24. So there are seven weeks uh, that, that between this decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of an anointed one, a prince. And you notice that it's not the anointed one, but an anointed one. And the word prince there uh, could actually just refer to a ruler or a leader. And so here in this verse, it is likely referring to Ezra or Nehemiah who led the rebuilding efforts of the temple. And then there are 62 weeks where Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but in a troubled time. Now, that certainly happened in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and beyond their time. Sanballat the plotter tried to, to thwart and ruin the efforts of Israel to rebuild the city. And then after that time, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. It's worth noting that that language of being cut off is the same language that is often used in Scripture to make a covenant. So literally, to, to make a covenant in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. And that comes from the practice of cutting an animal in half and walking through the halves, saying, so shall the same happen to me if I do not keep this covenant. Interestingly, that's actually where our language comes from in English when we say, oh, I'm going to cut a deal with this person. I don't know about you, but that never made sense to me, that phrase. And now it does. And this is important because as far as I can tell, this anointed one in verse 26 is referring to the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus himself. Isaiah 53, which you may be familiar with, that great chapter that we love to quote as pointing to Jesus, it gives us another significant cross-reference in verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living. You see, Jesus would pay for this covenant with his blood. He would be cut off from the land of the living. He would be rejected by all and he would be forsaken by the Father so that all who come to him would not be. And then Jesus would make a strong covenant with many. A new covenant in his blood. One that no longer requires continual sacrifice and offering for a person to be clean. And the temple would be destroyed by one who would make desolate. Jesus would pick up on this language in the Olivet Discourse. We read it earlier. To describe both this destruction of Jerusalem and, in, in, and the temple in AD 70, but also would look towards the end of the age. You see, this is yet further proof that this passage points to a time far off. Jesus himself understood that it referred to something beyond his lifetime. And it is then that those six things in verse 24 will find their fulfillment. Sin will finally be atoned for and put to an end. And everlasting righteousness will be brought in. 
This is what the book of Hebrews called a better covenant. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. The one that deals with sin once and for all. You see, Daniel interceded for God's people based on the covenant that God had made with Israel. He confessed their sin, even though he was largely not guilty of it. And under that covenant, sacrifices at the temple, they were still necessary. Being a part of ethnic Israel was still necessary. But we have an intercessor, a mediator who intercedes on our behalf, even though he was never guilty of sin. The covenant that we enter into in Christ is not based on continual sacrifices and offerings, but on Jesus' finished work on the cross. Its promise of a most holy place is not just of a rebuilt Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem. And we have entered into that by calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself will welcome us into it when he comes again. We can repent of our sin. We can plead with God for forgiveness. We can trust in his covenant promises because Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Let us confess, exalt, and pray in that assurance. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we rejoice and praise you for the covenant under which we now find ourselves in Christ. Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. We confess them to you. And we trust and are so thankful for the fact that we can be confident in them being done away with because of Christ. Lord, we eagerly anticipate his coming again. We pray that in the here and now, we would pray prayers of assurance in knowing that you are the God who is righteous, who is merciful, and who forgives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.